Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 25, we'll read to the end of the chapter. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. You may be seated. It's been traditionally accepted that this letter to the Hebrews is written by the Apostle Paul to Christian Jews in Jerusalem before that city was destroyed in AD 70. If the book of Romans is the great New Testament thesis of doctrinal truth to the Gentile world, then Hebrews is its Jewish counterpart. This letter was written to help Christian Jews understand their relationship to the Mosaic law in light of Christ's work on the cross. So, although we are mostly here today, if not completely, a group of Gentile Christians, I think we can still expect that God has much for us in this letter. In the book of Hebrews, we see that Jesus Christ is God himself. And the outcome of the incarnation, suffering, the death, resurrection of Christ is that Christ brings many sons to glory. He takes away Satan's power over death. He frees us from slavery to fear death. He helps us, Scripture says. He comes to our aid. He becomes for us our merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus Christ makes satisfaction of the justice of God. He is the propitiation for our sins. Because of the work of the Son of God, God is not ashamed of anyone who is in Jesus Christ. God has made his church holy. And in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, we see that we are referred to as holy. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. In this letter, we see that God does not only do something for man, but he does something with man, and he becomes a partaker of Christ. The context of this letter is that true Christianity is marked by perseverance. The Christian holds fast in the midst of the trial. And there is another tremendous theme here as well, and that is that true Christianity unites the word of God with saving faith. 
And this results in the Christian entering into God's rest, both now and in eternity. And we are exhorted to be diligent to enter into God's rest. Well, the basis for this tremendous victory that is ours in Christ is the perfect intercession of Christ for us as our great high priest. And in chapter 7, verse 25, it tells us that, we, that Jesus Christ is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Only Jesus Christ can bring us to God. In the Old Testament, we see, as is reviewed in this letter to the Hebrews, the Old Covenant, which is basically a covenant in which sinful, weak men serve as so-called priests in an earthly tabernacle, offering the blood of bulls and goats over and over again as supposed sacrifices for sin. But the reality of these sacrifices is that they actually serve as reminders that the conscience of man is defiled. These animal sacrifices are testaments that the way to God was still closed, that man cannot come to God himself. Contrast that with the new covenant in which the holy, innocent, undefiled, sinless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, offers himself once for all time as the perfect sacrifice for sin. And this one sacrifice cleanses man's heart from an evil conscience. In Christ, there is a new and living way by which we can draw near to God in full assurance of faith. So the book of Hebrews is full of encouragement for the Christian, both Jew and Gentile. God does not give help to angels. He gives help to the church, to those who are in Jesus Christ, who are identified with his work, his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh, So he is able to come to your aid in your present pain. He knows the way that you take. We are exhorted to draw near with confidence, to come boldly to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Whatever grace you need, it is there at the throne of grace through Jesus Christ. We have forgiveness of sins in Christ. God is merciful to our iniquities in Christ and remembers our sins no more. This is so significant of a, of a theme, of a fact to the letter here that Jeremiah 31 is quoted in part twice in both Hebrews 8 and 10. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. We have strong encouragement 
to take hold of the hope set before us. A hope that is an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast, and one that enters within the veil, one which brings us to God himself. Consider what Christ has done. As some of you may recognize, as the song goes, you sent your son from your very own side. He poured him he poured himself out such great sacrifice to die for sinners. Redeem fallen man, you bore our own sins, Lord, what have you done? All, all for Christ, he deserves our all. All, brethren, all for Christ. Give to Christ your all. We can't slow down. We can't become sluggish. We must be diligent to realize the full assurance of hope until the very end. So this letter exhorts us, hold fast your confidence and the boast of your hope firm until the end. Hold fast your confession. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for God is faithful. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The church isn't made up of quitters. It's not made up of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. In this letter, you have this tremendous victory and also a great sense of urgency. We have the way to God before us in Christ, and we are hastening toward the goal, that is, hastening to God himself. The church triumphant, that is, the church in heaven has gone before us. They've been approved to God by faith. A great cloud of witnesses surrounds us. Chapter 11 reminds us in 12. And we are urged to run with endurance the race set before us, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Jesus, who endured his race. Jesus, who endured the cross, he didn't succumb to the shame of the cross. He despised it. He wasn't defeated in his sufferings. He was perfected by them and triumphed over them. The same Christ that suffered and died on the cross is now crowned with glory and honor, the text says in chapter 2, sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us, and he now waits until that day when his enemies are like a footstool for his feet. Victory is certain. Don't look at yourself. Look to Jesus, who is high and lifted up. Consider him who for the joy set before him endured the hostility of sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How many runners fail to make it to the end of the race because they're 
gaze falls off of the goal. They look to themselves. They look to their pain. They look to their own weaknesses. They're looking to their shame. They look at the waves around them rather than at the risen Christ. So the text exhorts us, throw off everything that is slowing you down in the race set before you. That is the message here. Resist sin to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Do you hate sin? You have the overwhelming grace of God before you in that Christ has stooped into humanity and suffered for our sins to cleanse us and to bring us to God. Will you draw near to God through him? As we've seen, some of the most profound encouragements in all of Scripture come to us in this letter to the Hebrews. And yet this encouragement is mixed with an urgency with a gravity and a warning. Some of the most terrifying passages of Scripture are found in this letter as well. Take care, brethren, that there be not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. That's chapter 6. God is looking for fruit in your life. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's chapter 10. Brethren, friends, you can't just come here And hear the word of God and walk away as though nothing has happened. If you go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, Scripture says there is no sacrifice for you left. God is not mocked, God isn't a fool. He won't be tricked. The word of God has gone out, it can't be undone. You who are without Christ today, you have heard enough truth just this morning alone to condemn you to hell if you reject Jesus Christ. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Brethren, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. This book opens with the fact that in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. And we're urged and cautioned to pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we don't drift away from it. Well, here in the passage we read this morning, 
we are warned again. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Well, who is speaking? God himself is speaking. God has spoken and he still speaks. The word of God is living and active and sharp and piercing. And it exposes who we are. It judges our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. What no man can see is laid out, exposed for what it is by the word of God. None of us even know ourselves until you come to the word of God. So we're told here, do not refuse him who is speaking. It's not a man speaking here. It's not someone you can brush aside. It is God himself. What did Jesus say to the Jews as recorded in John chapter 8? I speak truth. Why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Well, some may say we live in an age of grace, do we not? I mean, Romans 5 says where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Yes, that's very true, but the text goes on, doesn't it? There's, there is a chapter 6 in Romans. <laughs> How shall we who died to sin still live in it? The God of the Old Testament is the same God we see in the New. He is just as holy and righteous and zealous. God came to Israel repeatedly, and they ignored him. We have all their examples. Read the book of Jeremiah, and you will see the phrase, quote, again and again, end quote. And this phrase, again and again, occurs repeatedly. God speaks to Israel again and again. God teaches them again and again. He sends the prophets again and again. Literally, the phrase means rising early and sending. I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called to you, but you do not answer, Jeremiah 7.13. The text says there in Jeremiah that at the top of God's list, as it were, each day, God's foremost priority, the top thing on God's mind, was sending his word to Israel. But they ignored him. They killed the prophets. And ultimately they killed his son, Jesus Christ. Israel refused God. And what was the outcome? Hebrews 12:25 See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, refused him who warned them on earth, that would be Moses and the prophets, much less will we escape who turn away from him, capital H, him who warns from heaven. 
Israel ignored the voice of the prophets. And the result was that they didn't escape the wrath of God. Much less, much less will we escape if we ignore the voice of God himself speaking to us today. For this reason, Hebrews chapter 2 says, for this reason we much must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, that was the Mosaic law, the word spoken through angels, it proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. Well, that is what we have here today. So great a salvation before us. Much less will we escape who turn away today from him who warns from heaven. If those who set aside the law of mercy died without, or if those who set aside the law of Moses, pardon, died without mercy, What do you think it will be like for the one who has known something of Christ? The one who has received the knowledge of the truth, but then goes on sinning. Who goes on refusing him who is speaking. Who tramples the Son of God underfoot. How will we escape the wrath of God if we neglect so great a salvation? Much less will we escape if we turn away from him who warns us today from heaven? Brethren, God is the one warning us today in his word. He is speaking to us from heaven. The question is, are we listening? If we are listening, what do we hear? Who are we listening to? Are you listening to the wrong voice? God is not the only one who speaks in this world. Do we listen to the voice of him who reproaches and reviles? As Psalm 44 says. Or we could consider Psalm 55 where David wrote, I am restless in my complaint and am surely distracted. Because of the voice of the enemy. Because of the pressure of the wicked. The slanderer is always at work to distract us from the voice of God. Do we find that we're listening to the adversary instead of listening to God? Or are we listening to the voice of the world around us? Those about us? Is it that our desire for other things has entered in and is keeping us from hearing the voice of God? It may be that there are those here who are listening to the voice of the world rather than to the voice of God. Or it may be that you find that you're really unable to hear anything, any voice, other than your own because you have collapsed inwardly as the sister quoted 
from Psalm 42. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? The psalmist couldn't understand or help himself or get out of himself, you see. His vantage was inward. He had imploded. He had collapsed inwardly. What was his conclusion there? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. He knew this is, this is futile. I've got to get away from myself, out of myself. My gaze has to be on God, hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. There are many voices around us and about us to distract us from the one voice of God that is here before us. And we see in the text that we considered that the voice of God is completely different from all other voices. Look at verse 26 there in Hebrews 12. And his voice, that is the voice of God, shook the earth then. God's voice has shaken the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heaven. The voice of God does something profound. It's completely unlike any other voice that goes out. Men speak, and it comes to nothing. Uh, Psalm 46, the nations make an uproar. The kingdoms totter. God raises his voice, the earth melts, it disintegrates. The voice of man comes to nothing. Well, when did God shake the earth? Well, the reference here is to Exodus 19, and you don't need to turn there, but I'm going to read from Exodus 19, 16 through 20. And the context here is Moses on Mount Sinai. He's receiving the law from God. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, And the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. When God speaks, he speaks in power. The earth trembles, and men tremble. The sight of God coming down to the mountain was so awesome that we're told in this same chapter in Hebrews, that Moses was full of fear and trembling. Well, that's not the only time God has caused the earth to tremble. There are many, but the most significant would be found in Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, And yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. 
the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. God speaks. The earth shakes. Men tremble before him. Now, do you recall what happened at the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to draw toward, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. When God comes down at Mount Sinai, the earth shakes. When the Son of God dies on the cross, the earth shakes. When Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, there is a severe earthquake. The earth shakes. Why? as a testament both to the power of God and to the fact that this present world is passing away. Look at verse 26 again in, in Hebrews 12. And his voice shook the earth then. That's referring immediately to Mount Sinai. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. That is a quote from the book of Haggai. About 500 years before the incarnation of Christ, after the nation of Israel returned from their captivity, the book of Haggai records the people's efforts to rebuild a physical temple. Well, if you consider there in Haggai chapter, uh, chapter 2, you'll, you'll see that this temple paled in comparison to the glory of Solomon's temple, which had been destroyed. But the Lord, he is gracious, and he encourages the people that he is with them and that his spirit is in their midst. And uh, here this is, I'll read a little bit from Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord makes a promise. And it says here, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord says to Israel that the house they're building isn't even close to the majesty of the former temple. But then he says to them, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. 
It seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? And it would be if God were talking about something physical. But God isn't talking about a physical temple or a physical kingdom. He's talking about the excellence of a heavenly kingdom. He's talking about the future glory of the church. We see here that the work of God is not done. He has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. We live in a world that is passing away. The author to Hebrews is actually here circling back to what was mentioned in chapter 1 of Hebrews, where he quotes Psalm 102, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all become old, like a garment, like a mantle. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. Why should we listen to God? We should listen to God because he has promised that he is going to destroy every created thing that you know. He is going to overthrow thrones of kingdoms and destroy their powers so that which cannot be shaken may remain. Hebrews 12 27, this expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. The things which are shaken are outward temporal things. The earth is passing away. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Isaiah chapter 2 says, the day will come when men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble, when the earth passes away. 2 Peter 2 says, but by His word, that is the word of God, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Think of it just there. Just a realization of what is ahead should bring an easy end to pettiness and arguing and factions and divisions in the body and pride 
all of this is going away. How will Christ find us when he comes? Holy? Godly? Are we looking for and hastening the day of the Lord? Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Our world is passing away and also its lusts. Sinful pleasures will pass away. Our physical bodies will pass away. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. All flesh is as grass and all its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall off, we're told. Our strength fails. The best efforts of men end. The ministries of men end. Your deeds end. Many of our relationships will pass away. Two people who are separated by death may never see each other again. One may be in heaven, the other may be in hell. The institute of marriage ends on earth. Marriage always ends. The marriage we know of, it doesn't continue in heaven. Revelation tells us that sorrow, crying, pain, death, all these pass away for the Christian. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Death will be swallowed up in victory. The voice of the Son of God will sound forth and the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. There will be a resurrection of life for the Christian. Death will be gone. The spirit will be united with an immortal, imperishable body. Brethren, I think we see, suffice it to say, that what we have here now on this earth is not it. Look at the house we're in. Look at your own bodies. Everything you see will pass away. Well, what then will be left? We've considered all the things that can be shaken. But the text tells us that certain things will be shaken, those of created things, for a specific reason. And that is that those things which cannot be shaken, may remain. So what are the things that do remain for the Christian? Well, Isaiah 60 tells us that the day will come in which we can say this with full reality, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord. You will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. When everything on this earth falls away, then Christ will be perfectly glorified and magnified in his people. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. So we will ever be with the Lord. We will have the Lord, brethren. We will have Jesus Christ 
who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. His life is indestructible, Scripture tells us. Hebrews 7.16 His word cannot be shaken. The word of the Lord endures forever. 1 Peter 1.25 The sufficiency of the work of Christ will never change. Hebrews 9.26 tells us once at the consummation of the ages he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The sanctifying, cleansing power of Christ's work in his church will never change. It remains. Forgiveness of sin remains. The Christian has forgiveness of sin now and in eternity. Hebrews 9.28 So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. To those who eagerly await him, when Christ returns to bring his church on earth to heaven, it will have absolutely nothing to do with our sin. Nothing at all, because the sin is gone, and it will remain gone, remembered no more. He will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. This is all real and true because the priesthood of Jesus Christ is permanent. He always lives to intercede for us. The Christian is sanctified once for all through the body of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ today, you are set off, set apart from everything else. It can't be undone. The Christian is sanctified once for all. Brethren, the love of God remains. Love never fails. Prophecies are brought to nothing. Tongues are silenced. Knowledge passes away. But the love of God who sent his son into the world will never fail. It will never be shaken. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness to sinners in Jesus Christ is everlasting. The love of God endures. Brethren, God saves the best wine for last. The latter glory, we're told, will be greater than the former we have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, 1 Peter 1.4. That is why Jesus Christ, in this letter to the Hebrews, is called the high priest of the good things to come. We have an eternal inheritance. We have something better in store. Brethren, we are promised eternal life. 
the one who does the will of God lives forever. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We have glory ahead. So we see that the Christian has an unshakable kingdom in store. Are you seeking the unshakable kingdom of God? If you're not, then by default, it can only mean that you are seeking an earthly kingdom, a kingdom which must be shaken. It will be shaken. It will fall away. And so we are told, we are warned, do not refuse the voice of God today speaking to you in his word. Much less will we escape. No one will escape the wrath of God who turns away from him who warns from heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Here we do not have a lasting city, but we are to seek the city that is to come. According to his promise, let us look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, in summing things up, we have to ask... What is the Christian's response to these things? Look at verse 28, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom, you see there it doesn't say received, it's good as done. Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The one who has Christ in himself, the person who belongs to Christ, whose sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ's perfect sacrifice, the one who is experiencing the reality of confident communion with God, the one who draws near to God with boldness, now is the one who will partake of God's unshakable kingdom in eternity. The overflow of the work of God in the life of the Christian is gratitude. It is one of thanksgiving to God. Do you have a thankful heart? Do you see all that God has done for you? Do you offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and in awe of his holiness? Do you have love for the brethren? Time fails us to continue on to chapter 13, but 13.1 flows right out of that. Let love of the brethren continue. Do you love the brethren? Meaning, you think more of them than you do of yourself. You're willing to sacrifice for them. 
you lay down your life for the brethren. What happens to you is of little consequence. The brethren, that is your concern. That is your goal. If you read through the book of Hebrews and consider what love is and how it's demonstrated in Jesus Christ, then you have something. Let love of the brethren continue. Do you show hospitality? Are you gracious to those who are ill-treated? Does your marriage honor God? Do you have a problem with covetousness or greed? Are you free from the love of money? Are you free from the love of the things of this world, created things which will be shaken? If you continue on in this letter, you will see that there are questions you cannot ignore. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Well, Scripture leaves us confident that the unshakable things are reserved in heaven for those who demonstrate the life of Christ in them now on earth. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude to God by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Either you will be consumed by his love and enter into an unshakable kingdom through Jesus Christ, or you will be consumed by the fire of his wrath. God help us in these things to humbly and obediently seek him and to listen to his voice. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, what is man that you are? mindful of him help us to seek that which is to come may our affections be found in you may our heart be consumed with the fire of your holiness in obedience amen